A reading from Psalm 127, 1 through 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Well, Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. We thank you. We thank you, God, for speaking. Uh, We don't have to complain about having a distant father because you make yourself known to us. You desire a relationship with us. And you, God, bless your children with good things. Um, So Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning. We we pray that you would guide us as we engage with your word. Uh, Help us to see you. And God, most importantly, we pray that we would behold Jesus in all of his goodness. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, over the last several years, uh, in conversations with people, I have noticed something. And this might be unique to the last several years, or it might just be the fact that, that I'm getting older. Um, but I feel like no matter what month we are in, people are shocked that we are in the month that we are in. Right? With every changing month, can, can you believe that it is August? Can you believe that August is almost over? Can you believe that it's September? And right? we do the same thing with seasons. Can you believe that the summer is already over? over and over and over again. And typically, this is not a happy surprise. It is an anxious one. As each month passes, our to-do lists grow, our responsibilities increase, and the time we have to take care of business, get things done, it decreases. And I think our anxiety about the progress of the calendar is symptomatic of a larger issue. We are trying to do too much on our own. And so we need the reminder from our passage this morning. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Friends, life is too much for us to do on our own. But the good news of this text and the good news that we are presented with time and again throughout Scripture is that we do not have to do life on our own. God is with us every step of the way, leading us, guiding us, directing us, giving meaning to our lives and our work, and giving us rest when we need it. So I want you to take a moment right now and take stock. How are you doing? When was the last time you asked yourself that question, how am I doing? Where are you feeling anxious? Where are you feeling overwhelmed? What are you looking to for meaning? What is keeping you from finding rest? Is it work? Is it your kids? A relationship? Just overall uncertainty? Well, friends, no matter where you are at this morning, I think this is a text that we all need to hear. 
And this morning, I would like for us to look at two things from it, two things that we need, and thankfully, two things that God gives. The first is meaning in our labor, and the second is rest from our labor. So I'd like for us to begin by looking at the gift of meaning. So let's read verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2 together. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, upon first glance, it could look as though this text is is telling us that work is a problem. And some of you might be thinking, yes, work is a problem. But that's not what this text is trying to communicate. That's not what the Bible as a whole communicates. Work throughout Scripture is is often cast in a positive light. In the beginning, God worked. He engaged in the work of creation. And Jesus in John 5 says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And when God created humans, He gave them a job to do. There was work to do in the garden. There was work in paradise. In Genesis 1.28, we read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first humans were given a real and a a challenging task, again, while in paradise. Work is an important part of who we are, and it is good. So if work in and of itself isn't the problem, what is? The problem isn't work in and of itself, it's it's work as an end in itself. Now when we read the beginning of Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, we can read Solomon, who is the author of this particular psalm. This is one of two psalms that he wrote. We can read him as referring to a literal house, which would be appropriate since Solomon was the one who built the temple. This was an ambition that his father David had. And in 2 Samuel 7, when David describes wanting to build the temple, he wants to build a house for the Lord. So Solomon, in engaging in this task, would have needed the Lord's help. He would have needed the Lord's blessing. And in the ancient world, if one were to go about building a house, it would make all kinds of sense to ask God for help because the, the likelihood of something falling on you or you falling off of something was extremely high. But the psalmist here has something more than brick and mortar in mind. The word house in this passage can also refer to a dynasty or a legacy. And I think this points to a desire that we all have for meaning. To know that what we do matters. That there will be something of our efforts that last, that endure. The Austrian neurologist and psychologist Viktor Frankl, who survived a Nazi concentration camp, in his book Man's Search for Meaning, wrote this, There's nothing in the world, I venture to say, that would so effectively help one to survive, even the worst conditions, as the knowledge that there is meaning in one's life. Without meaning, we're not able to get up out of bed in the morning. But the tricky thing about meaning is that it's hard to, it's hard to manufacture on our own. 
in any lasting sense at least. And why is that? Well, because our efforts in and of themselves typically don't last. Since our passage uses the metaphor of building, we can think of it this way. Let's say that you are a builder and you take the time and you craft an amazing home, the home of your dreams. Every detail of this place is perfect. It is exactly what you imagined it would be. This would probably have to be somewhere outside of California because that sort of thing just doesn't happen anymore. But you get there, you live in it, and you love it. But there will come a time when you are no longer able to live there. Age or death will eventually remove you from that place. And there is no guarantee that that house will remain standing. Or if, it is an, if it's occupied by someone else, there's no guarantee that they're going to appreciate the work of your hands. All the things, all the details that you think are perfect may be completely annoying to someone else. Your work may end up being criticized. I had a very mild experience of this uh, last weekend. Um, I was, I was gone. I was at my brother-in-law's wedding uh, up in Ventura, and it was, it was a great time, um, and it was a whole family affair, which was really, was really fun. Um, we, we got up there on Wednesday, and on Thursday, we, we got put to work, which was good. Um, so we got to the venue, and we were setting up tables and chairs, and me and my brother-in-law had the task of building a backdrop for the ceremony. Um, now, building is generous. We, we put together a backdrop that, that someone else had built, now, neither me um, nor my brother-in-law are, are particularly good at building. Uh, we are fully capable of, of building something out of an Ikea box that has detailed instructions. But that's about as far as it goes. This backdrop did not come from an Ikea box. It did not have detailed instructions. And so for a bit, we felt like we were in over our heads. Uh, but we, we, we did it, though. Right? We put it together, and, and um, it stayed up. For the whole ceremony. Uh, we put it together Thursday, the ceremony was Saturday, and it didn't come down until Sunday, and, and it was on purpose that it came down. Um, I don't know that it, it could have survived Hillary, but it doesn't matter. So we felt good about that, about the, the work of our hands, um, but then on Sunday when we went to go put it down, my father-in-law asked a friend to come and, and to help get this thing down because this friend had a truck and we needed a truck in order to, to get it where it needed to go. And this friend of my father-in-law's does build things. And so when he got behind the backdrop and saw the mess that was the backdrop, he had all sorts of comments, not knowing that I was the one that put it together. <laughs> so he's looking at the screws. He's like, who uses these screws? There's only too many of these screws. Nobody uses these screws anymore. Uh, and just all sorts of different things about m my engineering um, yeah, he had lots of comments. I didn't tell him that, uh, that I was the one that put it together either. It's like, yeah, a monkey must have done it. It's crazy. Um, now that criticism, I didn't love it, but it didn't really hurt because I know that I am not a builder. I don't find my identity and my ability to, to make meaningful and, and, and lasting structures but there are all sorts of areas in my life where criticism, especially biting criticism, it'll, it'll hit differently. And I think that is true for every single one of us. So take just a second and think, like, what do you work hard at? 
care the most about? Places where you, what are the places where you find meaning and significance? Now imagine someone comes along and, and has all sorts of things to say. You know, you've probably experienced at work, you've, you've accomplished something, you've done something, you feel like you did a good job, and someone comes alongside and says, who would have done it like this? Or you probably can think of something that you've done for a spouse, a loved one, and it just completely misses the mark. Parenting is another place where we all have experienced criticism in one way or another. Katie and I joke uh, from time to time that we've already started our kids' therapy fund. Um, it's mostly a joke. Right? <laughs> Now, Katie and I care deeply about raising our kids. We, we love our kids. We, we, are, we try to be really, really intentional, but there is a reality to the fact that they're going to grow up and they're going to point out things that we did wrong because they're being raised by two sinful people. And we want to hear their criticisms. We want to invite them to do so, knowing that the, the gospel is real in that situation. But it's going to hurt. Even though we're anticipating, it's going to sting. See, all of the things that we work at, no matter how hard we work at them, no matter how deeply we care about them, no, how, no matter how intentional we may be with them, they're subject to criticism. On our own, we have no guarantee that any of our labors will last as we read in the book of Ecclesiastes, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. No matter how we expend our labor, our control is limited. We are finite. So then, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. See, only God has the ability to take our efforts and make them last, ensure that they have meaning. Tim Keller, in his book, Every Great Endeavor, tells a story about J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, Tolkien famously wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, among other things, but he apparently had a really hard time finishing that work. In fact, he got to a place where he doubted that he ever would actually finish. Now, for him, not finishing wouldn't have just meant the wasting of a few years. It would have meant the waste of a few decades worth of work. He spent years and years and years creating mythic languages for his work, crafting histories that went back thousands of years in the lives of his characters, all things that he knew he needed for his work to have the depth and texture that so many have come to appreciate about what he's done. But he got to a point where he had run out of the mental energy and invention, and he thought, but, he, but, but at the same time, the thought of not finishing was, quote, dreadful and numbing. Well, one morning, he woke up with a, a short story in his mind, and unlike him, he wrote it down very quickly and got it done. The story was called Leaf by Niggle, which he published in the Dublin Review. It was about a painter named Niggle. Now, the word Niggle isn't one that we typically use. Uh, it means, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, to work in a fiddling or ineffective way, 
to spend time unnecessarily on petty details. Now, Nigel was Tolkien himself, who knew that this was one of his major flaws. See, Tolkien was a perfectionist, always unhappy with what he produced. And he would obsess over small details, distracting himself from larger, more important ones, prone to worry and prone to procrastination. Well, in the story, Nigel was the same. We're told that Nigel had a long journey to make, but he, quote, did not want to go. Indeed, the whole idea was distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. And Nigel continually put the journey off, but he knew that it was inevitable. It was unavoidable. Well, this long journey was a euphemism for death. Well, Nigel, as I mentioned, was a a painter, and knowing that this journey was coming, he, he determined to paint one last picture. The picture was of a leaf and then a whole tree. And behind that tree, it would open up to an entire countryside. And Nigel lost interest in all of his other pictures. And in order to accommodate his vision, he laid out a canvas so large he needed a ladder to actually work on it. Now, Nigel knew that he had to die, but he told himself, quote, at any rate, I shall get this one picture done, my real picture, before I have to go on that wretched journey. So he meticulously worked on this canvas, but he never got much done for two reasons. One, he got so preoccupied with the details of this leaf, making sure that the shading and sheen and dewdrops were just right. So, so no matter how hard he worked, there was very little that actually showed up on the canvas. And the second reason that he didn't get a whole lot done was his, quote, kind heart. Nigel was constantly distracted by doing things for his neighbors. In particular, he had a neighbor named Parrish who did not appreciate Nigel's paintings at all. And he asked him to do a whole lot of things. And one night, when Nigel senses rightly that his time is almost up, Parrish insists that Nigel go out into the cold to go fetch a doctor for his sick wife. Well, as a result, Nigel comes down with a chill and a fever. And while working desperately on his unfinished picture a little bit later, the driver comes to take Nigel on the journey that he has been putting off. When he realizes that it's the end, Nigel bursts into tears because he didn't finish his painting. Well, after his death, his painting is found. It has a little bit of life in a museum, uh, just for a time, but it's eventually discarded and forgotten. The story doesn't end there, just in case you were concerned. In the afterlife, Nigel is put on a train that heads towards the mountains, and at one point he hears two voices. One seems to be the voice of justice, and it's a severe voice, and it points out how much time that Nigel had wasted and how little he had done with that time. But the other, gentler voice, though it was not soft, seems to be mercy, And it counters that Nigel has chosen to sacrifice for others, knowing what he was doing. And as a reward, when Nigel gets to the outskirts of the heavenly country, something catches his eye, and he runs to it, and there it is. And we read, Before him stood the tree, his tree finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing, and bending in the wind that Nigel had so often felt or guessed, and yet had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly lifted his arms and opened them wide. It is a gift, he said. 
And Tim Keller commenting on this story says this. He explains, the world before death, his old country, had forgotten Nigel almost completely. And there his work had ended unfinished and helpful to only a very few. But in his new country, the permanently real world, he finds that his tree in full detail and finished was not just a fancy that had died with him. No, it was indeed part of the true reality that would live and be enjoyed forever. And Keller goes on to write, If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun and no one will ever be around to remember anything that has ever happened. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless there is a God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All right, so what does this mean for us? Well, first, there is a a tough and a sobering note. We don't have the power on our own to make anything that we do last. We don't even have control over how we're going to be remembered. There will come a day when all of our labor and its fruits will get passed on to someone else. and We have to let go. No number of early mornings or late nights done in our own strength for our own legacies will earn us anything other than the bread of anxious toil. And if this is the only reality, if we truly only live once, then if things don't work out the way that we hoped for, that's it. That's the end. We're done for. I mean, that is an anxiety-producing notion, is it not? And I don't think that it's a coincidence that as this belief has gained more traction in our society, anxiety and depression have skyrocketed. All right, so that's the sobering note. But there's a liberating note that goes along with this as well. And that is that in God, if He builds the house, If we trust in Him to provide something meaningful, something lasting, something worthwhile, then there truly is hope. So if your job feels monotonous, if you are in the trenches of child-rearing, packing lunches, changing diapers, doing endless amounts of laundry, if you're in between careers looking for the next thing, no matter what it is that you're engaged in, God can do something beautiful with that. Something beyond your wildest imaginings. Again, as Keller wrote, if the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. So think, what is God calling you to? No matter what task you are engaged in on a regular basis, God can take that and he can make it matter forever. Whether it's responding to emails, 
taking care of clients, feeding babies, grocery shopping, running a business, making art, passing, passing something that you've learned down to someone else, watching your grandkids. Every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. What we do apart from God is vain. What we do in and for him matters in ways that we can't even begin to fathom. So friends, I would encourage you to take that into this week. Allow that truth to shape how you view your to-do list. There's nothing on your to-do list that is so important that it defines you forever. But there is nothing so small that God can't use it to make a huge impact. Well, what happens when we are able to truly grasp this? The reality that, that, that God is able to use even the smallest things for eternal purposes, and that it's not all dependent on us? I think the result is rest. So let's now look at that gift. But first, think for a second, how are you sleeping right now? Are there things that are keeping you up at night? Do you find yourself replaying the events of the day, thinking about things that you could have or should have done differently? Do you get anxious about upcoming events, wondering how am I possibly going to get all of these things done? We probably all at some level need to hear and sit with verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Why? for he gives to his beloved sleep. See, if it's up to us to create our own meaning, then anxiety is sure to follow. It follows naturally. But if we can trust in the fact that God is up to something, that he can use our efforts even when we're not aware of it at the time, then we can, we can actually find true rest. And this passage tells us that rest, that sleep is a gift from God, an evidence of his love. Isn't it interesting that, that we need sleep? The fact that when God created creatures in his own image, he said, yes, they are going to need to conk out for at least eight hours in a day for them to be fully functional. And given the fact that, that there's only 24 hours in a day, eight hours is a lot of it, isn't it? And if you do the math, which typically I try to avoid, I'm pretty sure that's like a third of the day that we're supposed to be unconscious for. And what is it that we accomplish while we sleep? Nothing. We don't accomplish anything while we sleep. I mean, it's good for our bodies, but anything positive that happens as a result of our sleeping, it's totally unconscious. And literally, it is unconscious. So why is it that God would make us that way? There's a pastor named Kevin DeYoung uh, who looked at this text and, and asked the same question, and he answers it like this. He says, why did the Lord create us to need sleep? Surely this is one of the reasons. Every day the Lord gives you and I an opportunity to embrace finitude. Every day he gives you and I an opportunity to trust him. Additionally, the gift of sleep provides us with an amazing opportunity to recognize and celebrate the fact that our status before God 
is a gift of grace. Who sleeps according to this text? His beloved. And what do we earn while we sleep? Nothing. What do we produce while we sleep? Maybe some strange noises, but apart from that, we produce nothing. Sleep is a gift of grace. And it is part of the story of God's grace that we see from the very beginning. It's an opportunity to celebrate the gospel in which we are told that our status before God is something that's bestowed on us through the work of Jesus. Paul summarizes the gospel beautifully in Ephesians 2 when he writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we had turned away from God and pursued sin, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Our status before God in the gospel is a gift of grace, and sleep is an opportunity for us to celebrate the gospel, a story that God has been weaving since the very beginning. If you look at the creation account in Genesis 1, there is a refrain that we hear six times, and there was evening and there was morning, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth days. This is God marking the days, but there's something about that refrain that feels a little backwards, doesn't it? There's evening and then there's morning. It's the opposite of the way that we tend to mark the days, isn't it? When we see a day, when we see the day as winding down, when the sun has set, that is when God says the day actually begins. This is why Sabbath begins, even today, even in this building. It begins on Friday nights. The day is marked from sundown to sundown. And in an ancient agrarian culture, long before we knew how to harness the power of electricity to light up a room, what would a person do soon after sundown? Go to bed. There's nothing else to do. The way that God marks the days, the first thing that you do in the day is go to sleep, where you will produce nothing. And I think that this is his reminder to us, that our status, our dignity, our worth is not wrapped up in what we produce. His love for us is not based on what we produce. Now, traditionally, it's believed that the first people to receive the written record of Genesis 1 was who? It was the Israelites in the wilderness who had just escaped slavery from Egypt. For generations, God's people have been told that their dignity, their worth, their value, the only thing that made them important was what they could produce. And God's message to them is at the beginning of the day, The first thing that I want for you to do every single day is go to sleep or you'll produce nothing. Why? Because I love you. And my love for you is not wrapped up in anything that you do for me. It is a gift of grace. I love you because I love you. I think that our world has adopted the Egyptian slave mentality which says that the the thing that truly matters is what we are able to do. The thing that defines us is what we are able to produce, how productive we can be. 
It's the mentality of anxious toil. But God's invitation is an invitation to rest. Jesus looks at us in our plight and he doesn't say, come to me, those of you who have figured it out. Come to me, those of you who are, who are just killing it, right? who are producing all sorts of great things. Come to me, you who are gifted. No, it is the opposite. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, we can rest in the knowledge that God can make every good endeavor mean something and that he gives to his beloved sleep. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, this morning we, we thank you for your word. Your word which tells us who you are and who we are in relation to you. But it is so easy for us to take on the mentality that, that, that what matters about us is what we're able to do. That the thing that defines us is our productivity. But God, we need your spirit to correct us. We need your spirit to guide and, and teach us that what matters about us is you. The fact that you have set your love on us as a free gift of grace. So Lord, we, we ask that that truth would both compel us to be bold, to take risks knowing that you can use anything, even our failure for your good purposes. But we also ask, God, that that, that reality would enable us to rest to rest in the knowledge that it's not all up to us and that you give to your beloved sleep. Help us to trust in that. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.